0: Section nine of the Expedition of Humphrey Clinker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Lynn. The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker by Tobias Smollett. Section nine. To Dr. Lewis. Dear Lewis, I have followed your directions with some success and might have been upon my legs by this time had the weather permitted me to use my saddle-horse. I rode out upon the downs last Tuesday, in the forenoon, when the sky, as far as the visible horizon, was without a cloud. But before I had gone a full mile, I was overtaken instantaneously by a storm of rain that wet me to the skin in three minutes. Whence it came, the devil knows. But it has laid me up, I suppose, for one fortnight. It makes me sick to hear people talk of the fine air upon Clifton Downs. How can the air be either agreeable or salutary where the demon of vapours descends in a perpetual drizzle? My confinement is the more intolerable, as I am surrounded with domestic vexations. My niece has had a dangerous fit of illness, occasioned by that cursed incident at Gloucester which I mentioned in my last. She is a poor good-natured simpleton, as soft as butter and as easily melted. Not that she's a fool. The girl's parts are not despicable, and her education has not been neglected. That is to say, she can write, and spell, and speak French, and play upon the harpsichord. Then she dances finely, has a good figure, and is very well inclined. But she's deficient in spirit, and so susceptible, and so tender forsooth. Truly, she's got a languishing eye, and reads romances. Then there's her brother, Squire Jerry, a pert jackanapes, full of college, petulance, and self-conceit, proud as a German count, and as hot and hasty as a Welsh mountaineer. As for that fantastical animal, my sister Tabby, you are no stranger to her qualifications. I vow to God she is sometimes so intolerable that I almost think she's the devil incarnate come to torment me for my sins. And yet I am conscious of no sins that ought to entail such family plagues upon me. Why, the devil, should not I shake off these torments at once? I an't married to Tabby, thank heaven, nor did I beget the other two. Let them choose another guardian. For my part I ain't in a condition to take care of myself, much less to superintend the conduct of giddy-headed boys and girls. You earnestly desire to know the particulars of our adventure at Gloucester, which are briefly these, and I hope they will go no further." Liddy had been so long copped up in a boarding-school, which, next to a nunnery, is the worst kind of seminary that ever was contrived for young women, that she became as inflammable as touchwood. And going to a play in holiday time—steath, I'm ashamed to tell you—she fell in love with one of the actors, a handsome young fellow that goes by the name of Wilson. The rascal soon perceived the impression he had made, and managed matters so as to see her at a house where she went to drink tea with her governess. This was the beginning of a correspondence which they kept up by means of a jade of a milliner who made and dressed caps for the girls at the boarding-school. When we arrived at Gloucester, Liddy came to stay at lodgings with her aunt, and Wilson bribed the maid to deliver a letter into her own hands. But it seems Jerry had already acquired so much credit with the maid, by what means he best knows, that she carried the letter to him, and so the whole plot was discovered. The rash boy, without saying a word of the matter to me, went immediately in search of Wilson, and, I suppose, treated him with insolence enough. The theatrical hero was too far gone in romance to brook such usage. He replied in blank verse, and a formal challenge ensued. They agreed to meet early next morning and decide the dispute with sword and pistol. I heard nothing at all of the affair till Mr. Morley came to my bedside in the morning and told me he was afraid my nephew was going to fight as he had been overheard talking very loud and vehement with Wilson at the young man's lodgings the night before, and afterwards went and bought powder and ball at a shop in the neighbourhood. I got up immediately, and upon inquiry found that he was just going out. I begged Morley to knock up the mayor, that he might interpose as a magistrate, and in the meantime I hobbled after the squire, whom I saw at a distance, walking at a great pace towards the city gate. In spite of all my efforts, I could not come up till our two combatants had taken their ground and were priming their pistols. An old house luckily screened me from their view, so that I rushed upon them at once before I was perceived. They were both confounded, and attempted to make their escape different ways. But Morley, coming up with constables at that instant, took Wilson into custody, and Jerry followed him quietly to the Mayor's house. All this time I was ignorant of what had passed the preceding day, and neither of the parties would discover a tittle of the matter. The mayor observed that it was great presumption in Wilson, who was a stroller, to proceed to such extremities with a gentleman of family and fortune, and threatened to commit him on the vagrant act. The young fellow bustled up with great spirit, declaring he was a gentleman and would be treated as such. But he refused to explain himself further. The master of the company being sent for and examined, touching the said Wilson, said the young man had engaged with him at birmingham about six months ago but never would take his salary that he had behaved so well in his private character as to acquire the respect and good will of all his acquaintance and that the public owned his merit as an actor was altogether extraordinary after all i fancy he will turn out to be a runaway prentice from london the manager offered to bail him for any sum provided he would give his word and honour that he would keep the peace but the young gentleman was on his high ropes and would by no means lay himself under any restrictions. On the other hand, Hopeful was equally obstinate, till at length the mayor declared that if they both refused to be bound over, he would immediately commit Wilson as a vagrant to hard labour. Iona was much pleased with Jerry's behaviour on this occasion. He said that rather than Mr. Wilson should be treated in such an ignominious manner, he would give his word and honour to prosecute the affair no further while they remained at Gloucester. Wilson thanked him for his generous manner of proceeding, and was discharged. On our return to our lodgings, my nephew explained the whole mystery, and I own I was exceedingly incensed. Liddy, being questioned on the subject, and very severely reproached by that wild cat, my sister Tabby, first swooned away, then, dissolving in a flood of tears, confessed all the particulars of the correspondence, at the same time giving up three letters, which was all she had received from her admirer. The last, which Jerry intercepted, I send you enclosed, and when you have read it, I dare say you won't wonder at the progress the writer had made in the heart of a simple girl, utterly unacquainted with the characters of mankind. Thinking it was high time to remove her from such a dangerous connection, I carried her off the very next day to Bristol. But the poor creature was so frightened and fluttered by our threats and expostulations, that she fell sick the fourth day after our arrival at Clifton and continued so ill for a whole week that her life was despaired of. It was not till yesterday that Dr. Rigg declared her out of danger. You cannot imagine what I have suffered, partly from the indiscretion of this poor child, but much more from the fear of losing her entirely. This air is intolerably cold, and the place quite solitary. I never go down to the well without returning low-spirited, for there I meet with half a dozen poor emaciated creatures with ghostly looks, in the last stage of consumption, who have made shift to linger through the winter like so many exotic plants languishing in a hot-house, but in all appearance will drop into their graves before the sun has warmth enough to mitigate the rigour of this ungenial spring. If you think the bath-water will be of any service to me, I will go thither so soon as my niece can bear the motion of the coach. Tell Barnes I am obliged to him for his advice, but don't choose to follow it. If Davis voluntarily offers to give up the farm, the others shall have it. But I will not begin at this time of day to distress my tenants, because they are unfortunate and cannot make regular payments. I wonder that Barnes should think me capable of such oppression. As for Higgins, the fellow is a notorious poacher, to be sure, and an impudent rascal to set his snares in my own paddock. But, I suppose, he thought he had some right, especially in my absence, to partake of what nature seems to have intended for common use. You may threaten him in my name as much as you please, and if he repeats the offence let me know it before you have recourse to justice. I know you are a great sportsman, and oblige many of your friends. I need not tell you to make use of my grounds, but it may be necessary to hint that I am more afraid of my fouling piece than of my game. When you can spare two or three brace of partridges, send them over by the stage-coach, and tell Gwillem that she forgot to pack up my flannel and wide shoes in the trunk-mail. I shall trouble you as usual from time to time, till at last I suppose you will be tired of corresponding with your assured friend, M. Bramble, Clifton, April seventeenth. End of Section nine.